Good morning. Um, our scripture this morning is uh, from Mark chapter 4. It will be on the screen, is already on the screen, and, uh, or on page 6 of your bulletin. This is the uh, gospel according to Mark chapter 4. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of God. All the surfers in the room were like, bro, that is a cool story. <laughs> um, it is an amazing story, and we're going to get into that in a moment. Welcome, welcome to Trinity. We're in a new series that we have entitled uh, Conversations with Jesus, and we're going through the different uh, Gospels. There are four of them. If you're new to Christianity, there are really four places for you to explore the person, the work, the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, those four books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're looking at different conversations that individuals have had with Jesus, uh, looking at the different topics that come up. Jesus is potentially the most, um, uh, I don't know, the, the, the worst, the, the most, um, what's the right word? historically shaping individual that has ever lived. It really doesn't matter what your perspective is on Christianity. Uh, you know that Jesus has shaped history, changed history, and to understand who he is, what he had to say, uh, the type of people he was interacting with, and uniquely in this story, the type of conversation that he is having with an inanimate object. And the unique conversations that Jesus has starts to color in who he is. So glad you can be here as we start our church, as we launch Trinity, and as we begin with this new series entitled Conversations with Jesus. Um, this, is a, this is fun time in the life of the church where we are just getting started. We are a church plant. A church plant means that we are a new community looking to serve the community where we are located, where you live. Uh, we are a group of people who are coming together and learning to be friends. That's what it means to be a church plant. It means that there are a lot of strangers coming in. Maybe you're inviting friends. Maybe this is your first Sunday. Hopefully, there are some folks coming each weekend who have not been a part of Trinity before. We are starting a new church to be able to serve the city and to engage people and bring them in. Last night, we had our first, uh, I guess, maybe non-Sunday community event. We called it our, our bonfire hangout. We had an amazing time. But the one thing I left with is that I had conversations with about three or four people or couples that I had really never had an in-depth conversation with. And I got to know them more in those maybe 10 to, 10 to 15 minutes that we shared than I have ever gotten to know them on a Sunday. We realize that Sundays can potentially be a little bit shallow. We're all coming, we're going, we're picking up kids, we're running around, and we're trying to become a group of friends. It's almost impossible on Sundays. We want to challenge you and encourage you to find ways to build community, to use your homes, to go out of your way to have meals with one another. Have those 10 to 15-minute conversations with folks, and let's start to become a group of like-minded friends that can really love our city. That's our vision. We're going to give you some opportunities to do that, but we want you to do that on your own as well. Become a church that can really bless San Diego. 
last night was amazing. And we want to invite you into the rest of that calendar that we have going on uh, over the summer. But let me jump in with us here. Uh, Conversations with Jesus, Mark chapter 4. This is a famous story about Jesus calming the storm. You know, and a modern person might hear this story, maybe for the first time, and think to themselves, how naive. Or maybe how primitive for somebody to be able to believe that someone could speak to waves and bypass the laws of nature. I want to say that as a Christian, and maybe for you who are Christians, we are not immune to the incredulity of this story. I mean, we read this story and we go, man, this is amazing. Did that really happen? Could that really happen? But see, as we understand who Jesus really is, if he is who he said he was, then we actually have a rubric for understanding how this could happen. There is room for possibility for Jesus to have a conversation with the wind and the waves if he is who he said he was, if he's the creator of the wind and the waves. So yes, Mark chapter 4 is a story about the disciples, it's a story about a storm, and it's a story about Jesus, but in many ways, it's about the collision of faith and fear. That's what this story, I think, really hinges on, and how the reality of Jesus gives shape to them both. And so that's actually the lens that I'm going to use to unpack this story. Three movements that I'll take you through are fear on the one hand, faith on the other, and then thirdly, what I'll walk you through is a faith that makes room for fear. So fear, faith, and a faith that makes room for fear. Try to say that five times fast, okay? (laughs) Fear, faith, and a faith that makes room for imperfection. So look at verse 35 under this first heading of fear. Verse 35. Verse 35 reads, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, who is Jesus, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? There's a little bit of context from Mark chapter 4. Jesus is gaining in popularity already, pretty early in the story. Jesus is gaining in popularity, and the crowds that have come to hear him have gotten so large that Jesus can no longer, in this story, teach from the shoreline where he was positioned. There's too much of a crowd, so he actually gets bumped out to a fishing boat. That's the context of the story where they say, actually, they took him. They didn't even take him to land. They just go east in a moment. But Jesus has spent all day in a fishing boat teaching the crowd who's probably lined up on the shore. And at this point, Jesus is likely exhausted. He's been teaching for much of the day. And Jesus gives instruction to his disciples, let's head east to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And if you're familiar with the book of Mark, one of the, this is one of the books that we encourage you to read first if you're new to Christianity. It is the shortest of the Gospels, but Mark moves quickly, and he's very direct. And in our text, he gets right to the point. When he tells us, look at verse 37... It says that a great windstorm arose on the lake. And I've already lost you because you're going, a windstorm? San Diego? What, 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 what? what is weather, right? But a great windstorm, much worse than this, a real hurricane-like windstorm came. The language that is used in the original is a fierce storm, right? A, a massive tornado-like, hurricane-like storm all of a sudden comes in. And actually, as people have studied that region, they say that the the Sea of Galilee is notorious for weather. 
It's 700 feet below sea level. So you have all of this warm air, and then about 30 miles north, you have mountains that are just below 10,000 feet, all the cool air. So you have the collision of the warm and the cold right above the Sea of Galilee, and it is infamous for quick changes and uh, amazing weather that changes very, very quickly. And in our story, you know that it's bad when the disciples start to freak out. Because a handful of these disciples are what? Fishermen, right? These are expert mariners. And so if those guys start to freak out, you better start to freak out too. The captain of the boat's going over, you go, I better jump in too. That's what's happening in this story. These are professional fishermen, and they lived on this lake, but the waves are high, water's starting to come in. These guys start to think that they're going to die on this lake. And where's Jesus in the story? And Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. And ironically, the only time that we hear of Jesus sleeping in the Gospels is in a storm. And you spend enough time with Jesus, you start to understand that there are these strange combination of words and pictures that go with Jesus. Storm and sleeping, right? King of kings born in a manger. Creator on a cross. Undeserving grace given to undeserving people. I mean, all of these things start to collide. And in our story, you have storm and sleeping. And the disciples take his sleeping as indifference, don't they? Because they kind of, kind of wake up and they look, where's Jesus? Well, he's asleep in the back of the boat. They interpret it as a lack of care and a lack of compassion. And literally, they're quoted as saying, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Why are you sleeping? We're here trying to survive. We don't know if we're going to make it. This is a serious storm. Why are you asleep? Don't you care that we're about to drown? And Jesus, I'm going I'm to interpret on my own. This is not the text, okay? You can almost assume Jesus kind of wakes up and he's like, <laughs> What's the big deal, guys, right? Well, he kind of stretches a little bit, looks around. But the text is very clear with the language that he uses. Mark tells us that he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, peace, be still. And it's amazing because the winds and the waves had heard that voice before. And the moment Jesus addresses them directly, the text says immediately that that the sea became like glass. Everything stopped. They recognized the voice. And Mark's point, clearly, is to reveal Jesus as the Lord of the storm. That's the point of the story. They are revealing Jesus as the Lord of the storm. No one can speak to waves and winds unless they have made them, unless they were the owner and creator. But Mark's real intention is to reveal Jesus as the one who's come to calm the storm. It's one thing to notice that he's potentially the Lord. It's another thing to notice that he's the Lord who's come to bring peace out of the chaos. And in this story, certainly it's external circumstances. He's showing that he's come to be the king of all things external. He's the Lord of the storm out there. But if you were to turn the page in Mark, you go to Mark chapter 5. Each of the stories deals with a different sort of frustration, a different sort of storm, and they're emotional, they're spiritual, they're physical, they're social uh, disorders. And the reason that Mark begins with this section with the physical is he's going, he's the Lord of the storm, but he's the Lord of every storm. So it's not artificial for me to actually go there. Mark goes there himself, spiritual storms. Jesus brings somebody back to life from the dead in Mark chapter 5. Relational storms, relational chaos, all sorts of frustration. 
He heals a demoniac, somebody who's possessed by a demon, right after he, he comes and he speaks to the waves. I see, Mark is revealing Jesus as the Lord of the storm, as the one who comes to bring health and healing and calm. And what the Bible is doing is he's helping us to name the truth that within every one of our lives, there is or there will be a showdown between fear and faith. There's always going to be a showdown between fear and faith. And the question we're left asking is, who's going to win? Or what's going to win the day and why? Notice in our story that becoming a Christian and following Jesus doesn't mean that storms won't come. Because who's in the boat with Jesus? These are the ultimate insiders. These are the disciples. His disciples are in the storm. Disorder, chaos, pain, suffering, loss, they're all a reality for all of us, Christians and non-Christians. And when the fear comes, there's a strong temptation to abandon ship, to run and hide out of fear that, once, that what we once believed couldn't still be true. And so what I'd love to do for a moment is define fear like this. Fear is losing sight of what is true. Fear is losing sight of what is true, or maybe better said, fear results from losing sight of what is true. Take children, for example. Children, if you have children, or we've all been children, maybe when you were a child or if your child has recently run to you, I've got three smaller children, they consistently come out of their room saying what? I am scared. There's something under my bed, something trying to get me. Can you come? Can you come and be a part of this situation? What a good parent does is they come in and they say, hey, listen, listen, they're not under the bed. They're in the closet. That's what my parents, that's what me and my wife do. We are good parents, right? <laughs> but what you do when a little one comes and says, I'm scared. There's something trying to get me. It's potentially under my bed. A good parent, not like me, is you turn on the lights. You tell them to get on their knees you lift up the little dust ruffle, you look under the bed, and you go, see, there's nothing there. Or you help them to see rightly. You help them to hold on to the truth. As adults, it's just as easy for us to get scared and for, for fear to be a part of our lives. Names come at us as children. Names come at us as adults. And it is very easy to believe that which has been spoken over you. Somebody says something insulting, somebody, you get a certain review, and all of a sudden, you adopt that as a definition for who you are. My little penny girl, she just turned eight this week. Her little brother is five. One of the ways a little brother likes to annoy a big sister is to come up to her and say, oh, you turned eight. Oh, you think so. Actually, you turned six. Right, that's what Aaron was walking around the house going, you didn't turn from seven to eight, you went from seven to six. What an annoying little brother, right? You went from seven to six and chaos erupts in the house. I didn't turn six, I turned eight. What has she lost sight of in the moment? And as a parent, what do we come do? We go, listen, he's an annoying little brother, you turned eight. Let's expose the truth. Why are you so frustrated by something that is not real? Huh? As adults, we fear all sorts of things. We experience all sorts, of, all sorts of storms threatening to ruin us, to wreck us, to derail us. Those storms for you are very personal. Storm for you may be a frustration over still being single when you'd like to be married. Or maybe it's frustration over not being able to fully prepare your kids for life and success in the way that you had hoped. 
Maybe it is a mounting pile of financial debt that feels like a huge storm. And all you're hoping for is a little bit of sunshine. But what it feels like is there's always a rainy day. Or you know what? Each of us is getting older. And as we age, we look at our bodies. We realize that we're not as strong as we once were. We also realize that potentially there are less days in front of us than there are behind us. There are things that happen to us physically. Cancer is a real thing. Disease is a real thing. Loss is a real thing. There are storms all around us. Fears creep in from all different angles. The question is, when those things collide in your life, who's going to win the day and why? There will always be a collision between fear and faith. In our story, as these things collide, these disciples, they lose sight, don't they? of what is true. Fear is losing sight of what is true. And the disciples, they lean into Jesus and they essentially say, look, don't you care that we are perishing? And friends, I, I would dare to assume that's the exact same phrase. Maybe if it's in, inarticulated in your life, that is what you are wrestling with too. Jesus, don't you care? I can't find happiness. I can't get over this financial debt. I'd love to be married. Why can't I be more happy? I've been married for 25 years, and we can't find happiness. This is an emotional, relational storm. There's chaos all around me. I can't find where I fit. Jesus, don't you care that I'm perishing? The collision, right, between real, honest, everyday fears and the potential that Jesus can make a difference. Let's go to part two which is faith. Look at verse 38 with me. Verse 38 says, but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? When it comes to questions of faith, there's often a modern embarrassment over stories like this, but I would say actually more generally over Christianity itself. Christians have often been teased as being anti-intellectual, and the reality is often we have been anti-intellectual. We have not thought about the implications of faith. We have blindly accepted that which we have been taught. We have not thought about the defeaters. We have not thought about people who have questions. We have not thought from the skeptical point of view. We have been accused of being anti-intellectual, and the honest answer is often we are. But what I'd like to say is it doesn't have to be that way, that there are people who are extremely thoughtful on both camps, and the best thinkers within the Christian camp can stand up against the best and the brightest of anybody because Christianity is a stream of thought. It's much more than a stream of thought, but it's a philosophy or it's a stream of thought that has teeth. It can stand up. It's easy to put a straw man up and to poke holes at it, but the reality is every worldview has got to deal with the human condition. It's got to deal with suffering. It's got to deal with pain. It's got to deal with chaos. It's got to deal with storms. I think Christianity does a pretty good job of standing up against it. It doesn't answer every question perfectly, but it gives you a rubric for understanding the thoughtfulness behind why Christians believe what they believe. Nobody should naively accept the Christian answer to life's biggest questions without having done the work. 
You got to be able to roll up your sleeves and go, I'm going to figure out if this thing is worth my time, if this thing is worth my investment, if I'm actually going to put my faith in this thing called Christianity. Do not believe because we said so, right? Believe because you've done the work. Christianity is reasonable. There shouldn't be a divide between faith and reason. That's part of what I'm trying to say. Christianity in and of itself is very thoughtful and very reasonable. Do not believe on blind faith. That's not what this story is about, and that's not what Christianity is about. But secondly, the secular world walks by faith too. Faith is a part of every day in every story. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Downtown San Diego, there's a great restaurant called Juniper and Ivy. Anybody ever been to Juniper and Ivy down in kind of the little Italy area? Wonderful restaurant. My wife and I go uh, every now and then just for a special occasion. And um, let's assume that you have never been there and you hear me start talking about Juniper and Ivy. Why would you go to that restaurant downtown and exchange your hard-earned money for whatever it is they're going to put on that plate? Why would you do that if you've never been? So you only do that because some guy in a you know, blue sweater stood up one day and he said to you, uh, I've been there a couple of times, it's a pretty decent place. And then you go and you say, okay, he knows a little bit about food, he, he's kind of a food, he wants to be a foodie, and so uh, the reputation or the, the recommendation's decent, let me go do a little bit more research. You're going to read the press, you're going to go online, you're going to go to the blogs, you're going to call some friends and say, hey, have you ever been to Juniper and Ivy? I want to give them my money. I hope that I get something good in return. But you've never been, and so essentially, when you show up, sit down, pay the money, expect something in return, you are what? You are walking by faith because you really don't know what you're going to get in return, but you have done the research. You've talked to people who kind of know, and you decide to take a chance. I'd say that's walking by faith. Or having, let's assume that you work on the seventh floor of a large office building. Every day you walk into your office building, like the one that I worked in Boston for about 10 years. We would go through the lobby, go to the elevators. I worked on the second floor. Let's assume that as I get into that elevator, I go, push the button, takes me up to the second floor. I have faith every time I get in that elevator. It's not going to take me to the third floor, the fourth floor, the tenth floor. It's going to take me to the second floor. But I also have faith that it's not going to go plummeting to the basement, Correct? I have faith that when I press 2, it's taking me to my office. Let's assume that I walk into that same office complex, I go to the elevator, and it says, <laughs> out of order. All of a sudden, I shift my faith to that sign, right? And that day, I literally walk by faith, and I go up the stairs. I'm not taking the elevator. Somebody who's an expert said, don't get in, so I shift my faith. Each day, you're walking by faith in, a, in, in various ways. And how about this example? Marriage. I have had the privilege of counseling a lot of people, a lot of young couples over the past 10 to 15 years. And each of those couples, men and women alike, they lean in as they come for pre-engagement and engagement counseling, and they say, how do I know that I've found the one? And the honest answer, if you've been married for any amount of time, is you don't. <laughs> right? Let's just end the counseling right there. <laughs> you don't. You don't know. But does that mean that you walk blindly? And the answer is resoundingly no. You do the work. right? You spend time observing. You learn about one another. You get into arguments and you see how they're resolved. You date one another. You see what a pursuit of each other looks like. You want to see that this individual, if you're a Christian, loves Jesus more than they love you. 
Right? You are studying, you are learning, you are making mistakes, you are observing. And then, once you've collected all the information, you decide, I love you enough to give you a ring. You get down on your knee, you ask that individual to marry you, you take your vows, you say, I do, and then you walk with this, uh, I don't know, <laughs> this bliss into an unknown future. You are completely walking by faith. Ask anybody who's been married for longer than a year. You have no idea what you are signing up for, right? But you don't walk blindly. You do as much research as you can. So not only is faith reasonable, but faith is everywhere. It is a regular part of every decision you make every day. And so if fear is losing sight of what is true, faith is holding on to what we know is true. That is faith. Faith is holding on to what we know is true. And friends, so yes, financial stress is real. Relational dysfunction is honest. It's real. Your children's imperfections and your imperfection as a parent, all of that is real. It's part of life. But what is most real is that God is going to make good on his promises. And if you jump into Mark 4, if faith is holding on to what is most true in Mark chapter 4, amidst all of the waves, amidst all of the winds, amidst all of the chaos, the frustration, and the fear, the thing that is the most true in that story is that Jesus is in the boat too. That is the thing that is the most true about this story. The Lord of the storm is part of the storm. Faith is the resolve to believe that God is good no matter what. If you take nothing else home, write that down and take it home. Biblical faith is the resolve to believe that God is good no matter what happens. See, God is not good if he relieves your financial stress. God is not good if he gives you the spouse that you desire. God is not only good if you get children who are perfect. God is not only good if they get a scholarship. God is not only good if you have a good bill of health. The reality is sometimes we think that's how God is supposed to function. God is only good if you give me what I want. The biblical picture of God is that God is good no matter what life gives you. God is not just good if the wind and the waves go away. God is good, period. And that's biblical faith. It is the resolve to believe that no matter what happens, no matter how many fears come my way, God is good. God is faithful. God is in the boat with me. Let me take you to the last part. Fear and faith. And then the last part is a faith that makes room for fear. Right? A faith that doesn't demand you be perfect. A Mark's readers would have immediately recognized the similarities between Jesus calming the storm and the Old Testament story of Jonah and that great big fish. You familiar with that? Did that resonate at all as you heard this story? Maybe you're unfamiliar with the story of Jonah. I'll give you a glimpse of what that story is about. But the early readers, when they heard about Jesus and the storm and all the unique details, they would immediately have made a connection between the Old Testament story of that prophet on the run who gets swallowed by the fish and what happens in Mark chapter 4. In both of those stories, there are men at sea with a crew of people who are with them. More than one boat and Mark and a crew of people with the prodigal prophet who's on the run, Jonah. What also happens in the story is that immediately weather sets in out of nowhere. 
There's a hurricane-like storm that sets in, and all of a sudden, the men are fearing for their life. They're assuming that they're going to drown. They're trying to figure out what's going on. How are we going to survive? Interestingly, even in the Jonah story, Jonah is hiding, and he's asleep. And the sailors, they have to come wake him up and say, don't you understand? We're about to go under. Wake up. Are you part of the chaos? Are you the cause of this storm? And in Mark's story, Jesus is asleep in the stern of the boat, and they have to shake him and wake him up. But in Jonah, friends, pay attention to the radical difference. But in Jonah, it takes the prophet being thrown into the chaos of the storm for the waves to subside, right? And in Mark chapter 4, Jesus doesn't get thrown in, does he? And he doesn't get thrown into the chaos of the sea on the Sea of Galilee because he was waiting for the storm of the cross. That's the only way this storm is going to go away in the Gospels and in our life. See, in order to calm the chaos and the disorder and the selfishness and the sin, both inside of us and out there in the world, Jesus is going to have to face a storm of a different kind than Jonah. Jesus was going to have to get thrown into the hurricane of my sin and my choices and your sin and your choices. And he takes it upon himself. And he deals with it in the storm of the crucifixion and the cross. But just like Jonah, he's going to have to get thrown in for the storm to subside. Go back and read that short prophetical book. He's going to have to get thrown in for the storm to go away. And this is exactly what happens with Jesus. He'd have to be thrown into. I want you to look at that little question there in verse 41 at the end of our text. I want you to remember this question that the disciples asked after Jesus spoke to the waves. They looked at one another and they said what? They said, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey? And friends, when we see Jesus bloodied on a cross for you and for me, we ought to ask the exact same thing. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey? Why is the creator on the cross? And the resounding answer is because he's come to calm the storm. He's come to heal you. He's come to be the rescuer. He's come to save us. And so the amazing thing about Christianity is that the God at the center of our faith isn't simply the Lord of the storm. He is the Lord in the storm. He's not on the seashore going, it looks pretty rough. The God of Christianity is in the storm. And this starts to become the foundation for our faith. This is the reason you believe. Because as you examine the life of Jesus, as we go through these conversations, as you study on your own, you're going to get an eyeful of who this Jesus really is. You're going to see he's compassionate. You're going to see that he's kind. You're going to see that he weeps over unrepentant hearts. You're going to see that he touches untouchable people. He gives the leper a hug. You hug a leper, you are unclean too. In fact, leprosy gets transferred to you. And he goes, that's why I'm here. I've come to be a part of that. See, this is the reason for our faith. This is why we believe what we believe. And this is why the story isn't about you having more faith. You have to walk away with that. This is not what the story's about. As if you said, I've got too much fear, I need to have more faith. This is a faith that makes room for you to be imperfect. And let me wrap up with this illustration. We're part of a tradition that makes room for fear. 
There's a writer by the name of D.A. Carson, and he uses the illustration of two Jewish men having a conversation with one another on the eve of the original Passover, back in the time of Moses in Egypt. Okay, so that's the setting, two men having a conversation, eve of the original Passover, and here's the short conversation these men have. He writes, picture two Jews by the name of Smith and Brown, remarkably Jewish names. The day before the first Passover, they're having a little discussion in the land of Goshen, and Smith says to Brown, boy, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? And Brown says, well, God told us what to do through his servant Moses. You don't have to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the lamb and daubed the two doorposts with blood, put blood on the lentil? Haven't you done that? You're already in pack to go. You're going to eat your whole Passover meal with your family, right? And the other man says, of course I've done that. I'm not stupid, but it's still pretty scary when you think of all the things that have happened around here recently. You know, flies and rivers turning to blood. It's pretty awful. He says, and then there's that threat of the firstborn being killed, you know. It's all right for you. You've got three sons. I've only got one, and I love my Charlie. And the angel of death is passing through tonight. I know what God says. I put the blood there, but it's pretty scary. I'll be glad when this night is over. And the other one responds, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. That night, the angel of death swept through the land Which one lost his son? And the answer is, of course, neither. Because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised by the individual, but on the ground of the blood of the lamb. See, and that's why this story isn't go have more faith. Go deal with your fear. Christianity is about Jesus. You don't have to be perfect because he was. You aren't saved by the intensity of your faith. You are saved by the fervor of Jesus. That's what grace is all about. But I do think this ought to drive you to want to live for the Lord of the storm. Love like that ought to drive you to want to live for the Lord of the storm. He is calming the storm for a reason. And it's so that you can better participate in what God is doing in the world to heal the world. As God comes to bring calm and peace out of the disorder of your life, you get to step into this new thing called God's calling on your life and better participate in what he wants to accomplish. Don't you want to be a part of what God is doing? We've got to be that transparent community for that to happen. We've got to step into this conversation with a God who says, I'm not just going to watch you from the shore. I'm in it with you. Put your faith in that. Let that be the reason why you possibly could begin to believe. That's the foundation of this church. That's the foundation of a community that can be open, and we're going to keep exploring together. I hope you leave encouraged today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the reality is that each of our faiths are imperfect. I'm filled with fear. Each morning I wake up thinking about something new to worry about, new anxieties, new pressures, ideas that run through our mind and heart. 
I thank you for the promise of grace, the promise of your love. I thank you that Jesus is not just the Lord of the storm, but he's the Lord in the storm. I pray that that would maybe surprise us afresh and anew. Maybe if we've been in the church for a while, we kind of know it, but we kind of don't believe it. I pray we'd see it again, feel it again, feel the weight of of it again, and that it would drive us to want to be a part of what you're doing in the world. We thank you that you are a God of grace. We thank you that you are a God of forgiveness. We thank you that you do not demand that we leave and have perfect faith. Those men, Smith and Brown, had a conversation, one scared, one confident, both had their sons saved by the blood of the Lamb. I pray that that would resound in our hearts as we try to be a community of like-minded friends spotlighting Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.